Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The New Statesman. Hi. Before we start, a quick reminder that you can still vote for us in the British Podcast Awards People's Choice category. Vote now at britishpodcastawards.com forward slash voting anytime until the 5th of September. Just type in the New Statesman podcast and it will come up. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And this is the New Statesman's politics podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing whether Labour's caution could turn into radicalism if it gets into government. I'm Anusha Kelly, I'm Britain editor of The New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have our political correspondent, Freddie Haywood. Today, we're going to discuss a theme you've written about in your debut politics column for The New Statesman magazine this week, which all of our listeners should go out and buy. Do you want to lay out your uh, thesis for us? Yeah, basically, I start by saying that you can tell from everything that Labour's doing at the moment, they're absolutely committed to winning and that's overriding any sort of policy or moral concern. I think that's front and centre and that's worth highlighting. And then I basically pose the question, if they're so focused on victory, does that mean they're going to sacrifice their left-wing credentials or their attempt to radically change government? And speaking to people this week, the insider riposte to this thesis is essentially, uh, well, we are going to be radical because there are lots of things that we can do that don't cost lots of money. Mm. They point to planning reforms that would hopefully lead to more house building, education reforms, labour market reforms, the fact that they want to scrap zero-hour contracts, sector-wide bargaining. There's lots of things that you can do that don't necessarily require money. Look back at what the Wilson government did in the 60s with the legalisation of abortion, the legalisation of homosexuality, new labour, devolution, the creation of the Supreme Court, um, the Human Rights Act. There's lots of things, often constitutional and social change, that can happen uh, that don't involve massive spending. And then as we've talked about many times, Anish, and I'm still convinced this is the most important thing in politics, Labour's fiscal rules are ambiguous at the moment. You have to basically scour Keir Starmer's speeches. You have to ring up Rachel Reeves' office multiple times to get any clarity, and it still doesn't really come. But what they've basically said, or it seems to, what they seem to be saying is that they're going to have the similar or the same fiscal rules on debt, on debt reduction as the government, or maybe even stricter. And then I basically say that this could be unsustainable once they get into office for two reasons. First of all, ba- Labour is basically betting that they're going to have the return of economic growth before they spend more money. It's quite a big bet, that, isn't it? It's quite a big bet. And then what's going to happen if they don't get the economic growth? I think there's going to be a definitely there's going to be a rethinking there. Secondly, the government's 
fiscal rules or are already set to be broken after the next election unless the Conservative government increase fuel duty, which they never do, and they the ABR basically predicted their model on the fact that they will do, and then we sort of know that they won't. So there's there's no headroom at all that we've already we already sort of know that the government's going to have to either raise taxes or increase borrowing or cut spending. They that's your sort of fiscal trilemma that governments have to grapple with in the short term. So because of that, I think Labour inevitably will have to raise taxes or increase borrowing. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because fiscal rules are kind of made to be broken, aren't they? It's very rare to have a government that sticks to their fiscal rules, but they are important politically. They can serve as a trap for the opposition or the government. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they are what's required to get the sort of, I think in your piece, it was, you described it as a tick from the IFS. Yeah, yeah, one Labour source basically said, we're really focused on getting the tick from the IFS on yeah. the manifesto. So this is the Institute yeah. of Fiscal Studies. Mm-hmm. This is the place that everyone turns to to work out whether or not our public finances are sustainable or not. Um, and if they support Labour's manifesto as fully costed as they'd like to frame it, um, then that's something that they think could contribute to their financial, their fiscal credibility. Yeah. So, you know, it is it is important in a politicking sense. But I think once you get into government, you can fiddle around with those fiscal rules Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak have done that. Yeah, we've had, I think, they've been changed seven times in the past 13 years. Yeah. I mean, New Labour didn't change their fiscal rules, I don't think, in 2009 post-financial crisis. And then uh, Osborne and Cameron and all the successive prime ministers since then have changed them multiple times. So they are flexible. And I think there are some signs, as we've discussed before, within the fiscal rules that they're going to uh, change them and and predict or project public finances over a longer period, uh, which lots of people are calling for, such as people like Andy Haldane, Mm. Uh, um, former chief economist at the Bank of England, people like that are basically saying that the fiscal rules that we've had for the past 15 years have been so constraining um, on public investment and public um, finances. And basically the way the government sees them is so short term to predict or call for debt to fall over a three-year or five-year period rather than a 10-year or 15-year horizon. So, yeah, I I do think it's likely that Labour will have to uh, look again at their fiscal rules and their spending they obviously do not want to talk about taxes at the moment. Obviously, they don't want to talk about many things. Uh, and uh, one of the key responses to this argument is basically, oh, is Labour lying to us then? Are they being dishonest? Are they going to do something different in government than they're currently saying? Uh, well, yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe <laughs> that is one way to interpret it. And I do think it's an indictment of uh, the way the political campaigns currently work in the UK. There's, there isn't much... Um, openness and transparency about what different parties want to do. You don't really know their full prospectus until six weeks, seven weeks before a general election when we get the full manifesto. Even then, manifestos are often extremely vague. Even then, governments often don't follow their manifestos in government, yeah. uh, particularly if there's a crisis. You know, no, There was no £70 billion uh, furlough scheme in the Conservative manifesto in 2019, understandably, of course, uh, but things change and governments act in a different away once they get into into power. So, yeah, there's a huge amount of ambiguity. Um, and I also think it's worth noting that just because Labour might be forced to increase taxes or increase spending, it doesn't mean that they're going to radically change the economic framework of the UK. Margaret Thatcher's probably still, still probably going to be the victor of the next election, whatever happens. The framework that she set up, I don't think we've got reason to believe is going to be upended in 2025. It just means that they might have to move away from some of the more austerity-focused language that I think has been coming out of Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves recently. After the break, we'll be chatting more about this. 
If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I think it's really interesting because you laid out the things that they've promised that are cheap or yeah. or free. And I think that's something that people in Labour or on the policy side are really keen to do. Introduce um, things that don't cost very much money, but also could, you know, create enduring changes in the way that this country is run. So institutional and regulatory changes. We discussed new Labour, so minimum wage, pension mm-hmm. reforms, new employment rights. They were changes that that weren't the most expensive funding commitments, but they were also enduring changes that weren't reversed by future governments. And I think that's something that Labour is quite keen on doing. Devolution is an example of that relaxing planning you mentioned. And there's other ones as well, changing the emphasis uh, in our curriculum, for example. And those things are less easy for governments in the future to reverse than say, okay, we're rolling out X number of sure start centres and then, you know, a a cutting government comes in afterwards and closes them down. So there's this sort of convenient bond between those things that um, don't necessarily require big funding commitments, but do actually have you know, an ability to transform the way that the country is run. Not quite at a Thatcherite level, I don't think, but something that suggests that there's a new consensus when Labour comes in. So I think that's going to be the emphasis when we do see the manifesto. Yeah, completely. And looking back to new Labour, I think it would be very strange to argue that what some of the change that they brought about was not radical. Yeah. You can, I and I would agree that Tony Blair basically saw himself um, as the executor of Thatcher's will, as I've said before, and he stayed close to her wishes. But he also brought about huge constitutional change. Yeah. Huge constitutional change and huge social change as well. That in, in and of itself is radical. You can argue for or against it or not, whatever you want. But it's definitely uh, radical. The other thing wasn't worth noting about New Labour is that they were able to massively increase public service funding without massively increasing taxes. That was a, a, a consequence of the fact that the economy was... Yeah. quite vigorous at that time, that something they inherited and then something they kept going until uh, the financial crisis in 2007-2008. Labour won't have that luxury at all. So if they do want to spend more money, then it becomes a question of borrowing um, or taxes. In the short term, they'll say, well, we're going to have economic growth. Okay, well, let's see if that happens. But that's the sort of dilemma that they currently face. Mm, and that, that's the that's the dilemma within Labour in, in terms of its internal politics as well, because there's yeah. some people within the sort of higher-ups 
in Keir Starmer's team who are sort of ameliorating their language to the party's left. Someone said to me fairly recently that, you know, once they get in, all bets are off. That's what they're telling some of the MPs on the left of the party, which basically means don't worry about all this austerity language. Once we get in, we'll do what we want. But then there's another side to it that I think I've heard more strongly recently, which is they're quite worried about when they get in because they're not going to be able to do massive changes to our public services. The NHS isn't going to feel that different, even if, as you suggest, they might be able to raise taxes here and there or do some more borrowing to put some more money into public services. It's not going to be felt that that greatly because there's just not that much money around and they're in such a state. So there's two there's two sides of it. And I think the, the side that worries that people are going to feel betrayed once Labour gets in because there's not going to be this huge surge of optimism is, is, is sort of on the ascent. Yeah. at the moment yeah and i think that's also a key point that the the social atmosphere of the country at the moment yeah. is completely different to what it was in the 90s i was speaking to someone in starmer's office last week or this week and they were basically saying that we're in an age of cynicism now and that actually might play to keir starmer's strength of, of naturally that's what they would say but it was it was one of the best um defenses of his more austere persona and lack of charisma that i've heard thus far he's basically saying that tony blair's approach of idealism and optimism was fine in that sort of millennial fervor of 97 uh, it's less applicable now or less it won't suffice it won't pass muster in a nation that's absolutely kneecapped by inflation people don't have the sense of hope about the future that that sort of politics could play off they need to be spoken to in a much more pr- pragmatic way there's the only way to build trust with the public and credibility is basically to demonstrate how you can deliver the things that you're promising. And also it's worth noting that's what number 10's thinking at the moment as well. They're basically saying we have to deliver these five priorities, otherwise there's no chance of us having the credibility to outline a vision for the country five years down the line. I mean, as we've spoken about before, there is no conception of what the country will look like after the next election coming up, the Conservative Party right now. All of their focus is on uh, the five priorities, which basically lead take them up to the end of the year. That's it, because they don't think that they've got even a chance of getting heard by the public until they deliver on those five priorities. So, yeah, I mean, that that age of cynicism also plays into it. And then I agree also about what you were saying about the dynamics within the party. The other thing worth noting on that is that when you get into government, the political focus suddenly shifts to the next election again. So whether or not Labour are going to be different in power... Well, it might not be the case because they're all they're all just go straight to the next election. Okay, actually, we need to be uh, or adopt this language or you know play down how much change you want to bring about in the economy because we need to win the next election. There's always another election. It goes back to the fact that British political campaigns aren't that good at having an honest debate about policy. Yeah, I thought the age of cynicism point in your piece was the most interesting actually because. Like you say, it is a bit of spin because they're suggesting Keir Starmer is the man for this moment yeah. where people don't necessarily feel, you know, a, a swell of hope or aspiration no. because they're, fi- they're finding life so tough at the moment and they need a politician mm. to meet them where they are. But it is interesting, isn't it? Because it, it perhaps suggests that his kind of politics is is something that, that people are more likely to engage with at the moment. I remember when Phil Whitaker and I were interviewing West yeah. Streeting, he said to us in defence, I think we were saying, you know, I can't remember what we were saying, the five missions were a bit vague or something mm. like that. And he was saying, actually, Keir Starmer is not the kind of man who believes in speeches about big visions. He thinks that's really woolly. He's not the kind of person who wants to do that. And I thought he was, you know, I thought he was basically uh, just defending his leader then. But it does strike me as something 
since reading your piece that is actually at the heart of the operation, which is thinking, actually, no, now it's not the time for a Blair-style swell of enthusiasm. It's time to explain sort of how we're going to manage things to make life a little bit better. Mm. But, you know, it's a risk because people always vote for the future. They want a bit of hope. I mean, I've sat in in focus groups where people talk a lot about wanting luxuries back in life. They want to go on holiday again. I've written a piece about yeah. it this week. And, you know, people are naturally looking looking to something better. And I think if it is just all doom and gloom, that might not necessarily be the most resonant thing. Yeah, it's a balance, isn't it? And I think what we're going to see from Labour in the autumn is an attempt to move away from the doom and gloom and slightly towards the more optimistic setting out of what they want to do in government. Well, thanks so much, Freddie. Your column's really interesting and I encourage all of our listeners to go and read it, either pick up a copy of the magazine or go on the website. Thanks, Anish. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to send a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us or put one in the YouTube comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleague, Freddie Haywood. We'll be back tomorrow to answer your questions in our next episode, You Ask Us. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. We're produced by Matt Murphy. Hold up. 